Isaiah 53 is a truly astonishing prophecy that reveals the entirety of the earthly life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It reveals his growing up, verse 2, in obscurity. It reveals his earthly ministry, including his miracles, his own pain and suffering, and his rejection. It reveals his being bound and brought to trial that was, in fact, a travesty of justice. It reveals his humiliating abuse at the hands of his interrogators. It reveals the fact that he would not lift up his own voice in his defense. It reveals the fact that because of the abuse that he suffered, that his bodily appearance would be uh, beyond human semblance. It reveals the fact that he would lay down his life as an act of obedience to the will of God. It records that he would, in spite of that, die under the wrath and curse of God. It reveals that his grave would be assigned with common criminals, but that in the providence of God, he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Every single part of this amazing prophecy came to pass in the life, death, and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Over 700 years in advance, spoken of by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. But the single most important aspect of this testimony about the Messiah is that which is stated in verse 5. In verse 5, it says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in verse 8, it says, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. I want to ask you, have you ever considered that? He says, who has considered that? Have you considered that? Have you considered why it is that Jesus Christ died on the cross? Have you considered what was happening when he died on the cross? Have you considered what was really going on? That he was dying as an obedient sacrifice on behalf of his people under the wrath and curse of God, but his death was for the sins, not of himself, but the sins of others. My sin, your sin, if you're a believer, that he took our place, that he stood in the stead, that we should have stood, he received the judgment and the punishment that we have received. He laid down his life. He was cut off, stricken for the transgression of my people. Are you a part of his people? Who are his people? Well, the answer is right in the very first verse. Who has believed our report? Are you one of those who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, who believes this gospel message, who puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we've come to a real turning point in this chapter. And it's a turning point in the middle of a verse, which is kind of unfortunate for us as we read these verses, but it is, uh, it is important for us to take note comes in the middle of verse number 10. Middle of verse 10. 
And there's a turning point here. And there's actually a grammatical hint that there is a turning point. And this hint is only slightly technical, but uh, I don't think it's really hard to understand. So let me just bear with me for a moment. Everything leading up to this, middle of verse 10, has been dominated by the Hebrew perfect tense. Most of the verbs are in the Hebrew perfect tense. Everything after this from verses 10 on, from the end of verse 10 on, are, are dominated by the imperfect tense. Now, Hebrew doesn't have you know, past, present, future quite like English does. It has perfect and imperfect tense. And rather than dealing primarily with, with the time of an action, it deals with the, um, the, the kind of action, you might say. So a perfect tense views the action as kind of a completed whole and, and often has implications of something that's done in the past. And often in English, it's translated in a past tense. The imperfect tense, on the other hand, views the action as ongoing and often implies present or future actions. So basically, everything up through the beginning of verse 10 Right, through the burial of Jesus Christ, is viewed now prophetically as kind of a completed whole. Jesus' whole life, ministry, sufferings, death, burial, all of his humiliation is viewed as a completed whole. This is the act of the Savior. And everything from here on, the end of verse 10 on, is viewed in an ongoing sense, as if it's happening right in front of us and will be the case as we move into the future. So there's a hint here, even in the, even in the language, but there's, I think, even a more significant indication that this is a turning point in the content of what we find in these last two and a half verses. Because so far, what has characterized this chapter? Suffering, pain, rejection, humiliation, chastening, right? Aren't all of these the words that we've been hearing the last two or three weeks? Now, starting in the middle, end of verse 10 and going on to the end of the chapter, we have life and offspring and inheritance and glory. Those are the kinds of things that we have moving forward. So there's a huge shift here. And that shift is summarized in the very last words of verse number 10, take a look at it again. This is the theme. The will of the Lord shall what? Say it out loud. Shall prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so I want to preach this morning on the success of the suffering servant of the Lord. The success of the suffering servant. And we're going to read this entire chapter, but really focusing in on the last two and a half verses. But beginning in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is the servant, the Messiah, for he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide his spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Praise forever and ever and ever be to the Savior about whom this text is written. And if I can, in some small way, lift your eyes to see the wonder and the glory of that Savior, then I will walk away rejoicing from this service today. There are two basic things in this text. That is the end of verse 10, 11, and 12. Two basic things here. First, the servant's success, and secondly, his reward. His success in verse 10 and 11, and his reward in verse 12. The servant's success is spoken of like this in the end of verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for sin, three things will happen. He will see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper by his hand. Now there is an implied condition here, right? Do you see it? When his soul makes an offering for sin, then these three things. Right? So the condition implied is whether or not not he will do this first part of the verse, which is what? Make his soul an offering for sin. 
the consequences come when the condition is met. That's why sometimes in some versions of the Bible, uh, or some translations, this is rendered as if. If his soul makes an offering for sin, then these three things will take place. And friend, I just want to stop to tell you that all of the rewards, all of the glory that are expounded here in the 11th and 12th verses, all depend on whether Christ will meet the condition. They depended on whether he would perfectly obey God and render his soul an offering for guilt. The if implies a condition, and the when translation just implies the certainty that the Savior will meet those conditions. But the condition is simply this. His soul makes an offering for guilt. If that happens, then all of the rest of this passage unfolds. So what is that? Well, that guilt offering, you know, is expounded in the law of God. In Leviticus chapter 5 and other places, the law of the guilt offering is expounded, and there the Bible says that when a person sins, and who is repentant about that sin, he recognizes that he has incurred guilt. He's incurred guilt before God. He's guilty. And the only way to get rid of that guilt is by God's own initiative. And God did so in providing a guilt offering for the removal of that guilt. That guilt offering was a perfect ram from the flock. Needed to be spotless without any kind of blemish. And that ram was brought to the Lord's house. And that ram, that guilt offering would be, as the scripture says, a compensation for his guilt, so that he would walk away from that sacrifice forgiven when that guilt offering paid the price. That guilt offering bore in its own body, slain and burnt on the altar to God, it bore in its own body the guilt of that sinner. This is what Isaiah predicts the servant must do. if all of the glory will come to pass. It must be this. It must be the cross. It must be suffering. It must be the wrath and curse of his own father. It must be a guilt offering. And this is the heart of the Christian message, isn't it? Christ laid down his life as a sacrifice in the place of guilty sinners. The Lamb of God was slain upon the cross to bear the guilt of all who would put their faith and trust in Him. And part of the condition in being this guilt offering is that the Lamb of God, the Messiah, must be a perfect sacrifice. For that Lamb could have no blemish, no spot. It needed to be perfect and pure. Just the specimen of lambhood. And so the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world, had to be perfect and holy and spotless, the specimen of what God meant for man to be. The perfect, obedient Son of God in heaven. If he would meet that condition, then all of the rest of chapter 53 would unfold. But if he was found with blemish and spot, if there was 
some hidden sin in his heart, some secret fault for which he deserved the wrath of God, then nothing would move forward. And all would end, as it does for every other man, in death, the wages of sin. Another part of this condition is that he must be willing. He must be an obedient sacrifice. He must lay his life down. It's not taken from him. He would go to that cross like the lamb would go to slaughter without kicking and screaming and fighting and defending himself and trying to get out of it. He would literally lay down his life purposefully and intentionally for God's people. If he would do that, if he would do that willingly, if he would do it obediently to his Father, not shirking from any one thing that his Father put in front of him to do, if he would willingly give himself to that, he would be the sacrifice for guilt. And if he hadn't maintained his life of flawlessness and sinlessness, there would be no salvation. And if he had not willingly and purposefully and obediently laid down his life in agony in the garden, wrestled with the temptation to turn away and laid down his life, nothing in the rest of this chapter would unfold for him or for any who come along in his train. The fate of all of us is resting on the obedience of this sacrifice. And if and when he met those conditions, and these three things would happen, verse 10. Number one, he would see his offspring. Does that seem like a strange thing to say about Jesus? Because we all know our Bibles. He was a person who was not married. He was childless. His life was cut off without posterity. But remember, this says that death... Laying down his life as the guilt offering is actually the condition in order that must be met in order to see his offspring. When he lays down his life like this, then he will see his offspring. How can that be? How is it that death is the necessary way of having the ability to see this offspring? And I think the answer is stated by our Lord himself in John chapter 12. Verse 33, Jesus speaking to his disciples said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now what did Jesus mean by that? He meant the time had come for him to set his face toward Jerusalem, for him to lay down his life in perfect obedience to the Father as a substitutionary guilt offering for his people. The time had come for him to face all of the pain and the suffering and the abuse and the humiliation. The time had come for him to be lifted up on a cross, shamefully displayed before all men to see, to mock at as a common criminal, to hang there exposed before all of humanity, numbered with the transgressors. But his lifting, being lifted up on the cross would be his being lifted up to glory. For this was the pinnacle act of his perfect life of obedience. And this is what would open the floodgates 
of glory that would be his. So he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he said this, here's part of the glory too. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, picture a little kernel of wheat or a seed of a plant. Anybody ever planted a seed in a little pot? Unless the seed goes into the ground and dies, it remains what? Alone. But if it dies, then what happens? Out of the death of that little seed comes life, and that produces a whole host of seeds, a whole harvest of grain. So death is actually the necessary component in, in this agricultural illustration to have abundant life, to have a new generation of crops, right? And this is the, exactly the way the Lord sees it. This is the means by which I obtain this end, which is a great harvest of offspring, a new generation of seed that will go on. And this is the only way his death on the cross as the sin offering was the only way for you and I then to be born, to be born from above. If and when he gave his soul as a guilt offering, then he would see his offspring. The grain of the seed would die and produce a harvest. And if he did that, if he would give himself up like that, then he would secondly prolong his days. Now, a great offspring and long life, well, those are the two of the blessings that the Hebrews cherish most, right? This is the blessing of God. But he, the Bible says earlier, was cut off out of the land of the living. He was cut off. We've read about his death. We've read about his burial. And now Isaiah comes to say, he will prolong his days and see his offspring. How in the world is that? How in the world is that? Well, that, there's only one meaning for somebody who's dead and buried to prolong his life and to see offspring when he had none. And that's what? That's resurrection. Yeah. Do you believe there's resurrection in the Old Testament? Prophecy of the resurrection? Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I preached to you the gospel that I received according to the scriptures that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. Where did he, how did he know that Christ would rise again? Well, many places, but this is one. This is the resurrection of the Messiah. And if these people had considered, had truly considered this text in faith toward God, they should have had eyes to see that this Messiah would be one who would rise from the dead. But once again, it was the perfect willing sacrifice of Christ that was the condition for this resurrection. If he lays down his life like this, he will be raised. If he gives himself up as the perfect guilt offering, then he will prolong his days. And this is what Paul, the Lord says through Paul in Philippians chapter 2, and being found in human form, speaking about Jesus, being found in human form, he became obedient. He humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the very next word out of Paul's pen is, therefore, because of that, 
in response to that, in reward of that, God has highly exalted him. Listen, the whole point of the prophecy is this. If Christ will lay down his life as a perfect, trusting sacrifice of obedience to God, then God will raise him back up again to life. And he did. And he did. And only then will this third thing happen. Verse 10, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What is the will of the Lord? It's revealed through this whole book. We've been reading it for 52 chapters now. The will of the Lord was to save a people. A people who were rebellious and guilty and sinful, wayward, to work such a transformation and such a miracle of grace for them through a sacrificial substitute and the changing of their hearts that they would be saved. And now that salvation is on the line. That salvation rests on whether this sacrifice will be obedient to the end. God willed to save a people. And that sacrifice had to be perfect. And so remember that when Jesus Christ came into the world, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that he said this, I have come to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. A body you prepared for me in which to do your will, and I do it. I will. Throughout his whole life, Jesus said, I seek not my will, but the will of him who sent me. How how different is that from you and I, right? How often are we willful? Willfully disobedient, willfully ignorant, willfully wayward. But he came into the world saying, I have come to do nothing but the will of the Father. Nothing else. That is my absolute determination. I'm going to do God's will. And he did. And in the very end, in the garden, in agony, he said, Father, if it's possible, take away this cup from me, this bitter cup that I'm about to drink. And the salvation of millions of souls hung in the balance in that garden. But then he said, but Father, not my will, but yours be done. He came to do the Father's will. He worked the Father's will through his whole life. And in the moment when he was tested more than any human being has ever been tested in all of the history of the world, he obeyed the Father's will. He yielded himself up to God, and he did exactly what this prophet said. He, w- he laid down his life as a guilt offering, and the will of the Lord prospered in his hand. And salvation was made sure and certain for all who were the Lord's people. Jesus obeyed. And verse 11 continues to describe Christ's successful work. If you will take a look at that text, verse 11, would you look at it? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, or be satisfied with what he sees, maybe you could say. So again, what does he see? What does he see that he's satisfied with? Well, remember what just came before in verse 9? Or excuse me, verse, well, earlier in verse 10? He will see his what? He will see his offspring. 
Now it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. He will see his offspring, but he sees them out of the anguish of his soul. And now let me just pause on that word anguish for a moment because it doesn't just have to do with pain and suffering. It is a word that implies pain and suffering, but it has to do more with the labor and toil that is characterized by pain and suffering. And it is out of, the little preposition means out of or from this difficult labor. In other words, it's in the context of laboring to be this perfect guilt offering that he sees his offspring. It's in the context of this labor that he sees. He's not out of it yet. He's in it. But while he's in it, he sees. And he's satisfied with what he sees. And I think the, you know, maybe a good illustration is this, like a woman in labor who is in the anguish of soul. In, even in that moment, why does she endure this labor? She endures this labor because she sees in her mind's eye, she sees this baby, right? She sees herself holding this little child. She sees the wonderful joy and life that this little one will bring. And so she labors. She toils through this because out of that labor she sees. This is what the scripture says about our Lord. This is an amazing thing to me. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured, why? Because there was joy set out there before him. What was that joy? Seeing a whole multitude of offspring who would become, by the grace of God, like him, pleasing to God, glorifying to the Father in heaven. He labored for that joyful sight. This is amazing love to endure all of this, to bring us forth, to see us, not as we were, but as we will be by the grace of God, brothers like himself. Can you imagine that, Christian? That the Savior had you in his mind's eye as he went to the cross? That he foresaw you? That he knew you? That he died for you? This is an amazing thing. And not only did his success, um, not only is it attributed to his endurance for that joyful future, but it is attributed here to his knowledge as well. Verse 11, the end of verse 11 and actually, from this point on in the text, it's God himself speaking. And God says, by his knowledge, by the servant's knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. What is this knowledge he's talking about? Well, if the second part of verse 11 is parallel to the first part, which it seems to me to be, then this knowledge is knowledge of suffering in obedience to God. It's experience, the knowledge of experience. It's the experience, the knowledge of experience in obedience to God. I think it's what 
the writer of Hebrews was saying about him when he said in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, about Jesus, that although he was a son, the very son of God, although he was a son, yet he learned obedience through what he suffered. In other words, he learned. He learned what it is to be an obedient son, even through the obedience of painful suffering beyond human understanding. And that knowledge, that experience of obedient suffering was the way in which, verse 11, he made many to be accounted righteous. He made many to be accounted righteous. That's a wonderful word, accounted righteous. Some of your versions may say he made, he justified many. That's it. It's the word justify. It's the word to make a legal declaration not guilty by his experiential knowledge of suffering in perfect obedience to God. He made it that the Father may pronounce a verdict of not guilty on all of us who, who, who frankly are guilty in ourselves. So how is this? The answer is that it goes back to the guilt offering, this compensation that God put one in the place of another. Because he did it, we are justified. So what hangs in the balance here? Our justification, right? Our justification before God hung in the balance of whether or not he would be the perfect, obedient guilt offering that God had willed him to be. Whether he would go through it with, with it all the way to the end whether he would bear their iniquities. All the condemnation and the consequences for our sin. So this servant was successful in bringing about God's purpose of salvation. He was successful. He would obey to the very death, even death on a cross. Therefore, now that verse 11, 11 is done, we go to verse 12, and this is the reward for all of his labor. Therefore, because the faithful servant obeyed God, did the will of the Lord, endured, even learned obedience through suffering, because he did that, therefore, the Lord says, I will divide him a portion with the many. I will divide him a portion. It's a word used of, sometimes of apportioning the land of Canaan out among the tribes. I will give him a portion in the inheritance, a portion in the land. Christ inherits what? A new creation, a new world, a new life as a reward for his obedience. And he earned it. He deserves heaven. But what it says is that I will divide him a portion with the many. The many will inherit that portion. Why? Because of him. Because he inherits it, and he, in turn, grants it to his people. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The image here is pretty apparent, right? Here's a victor who goes out and he wins the battle on behalf of his people. Think David winning the battle on behalf of all of the Israelites. He goes out and he wins the battle. He gets the booty and he shares the spoils with all who are his people. 
All of the blessings of salvation are ours because Jesus Christ won them. Because he deserves them as his reward. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. And it's very possible, in fact, I think it's probably likely that the translation um, could even be worded a little more clearly here. Um, and in this particular case, I'm, I'm not, generally, I don't uh, go with this translation, but the Christian Standard Bible, I think, kind of gets it here when it puts it this way. Therefore, uh, do we have the CSV here? Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil. So, in this case, what's the portion? What's the spoil? It's not that it's given to the people. It's that it is the people. These people are his reward. We are the spoils of war, as it were. Won by Christ's determined obedience. Jesus said when he came into the world, he said, I, I came you know, to, to cast out the devil. The, the, a person who will rob, who, who will plunder a house has to bind the strong man. And once he has done that, he can plunder that person's house. Set those sinners who were locked in that house of slavery free from their bondage to sin and Satan and death. When he ascended, Ephesians says, he led a host of captives. What did he do? He went into the, the, the realms of hell, as it were, those of us who were bound for death and destruction, and he brought us out and led out this host of captives like Moses led the captives out of Israel, out of uh, Egypt. In Psalm 2, the Lord says to his son, Today I have begotten you. A phrase that the apostles said was fulfilled in Christ's resurrection and his exaltation. And when the Father says to the Son, in light of his perfect lamb laying down of his life in obedience, and he exalts him to his own right hand, Today I have begotten you. The very next thing he says, Ask me, and I will give you the nations of the world to be yours. You will rule over them with a rod, and all who trust in you will be blessed. I will give the people to you. That's it. You and I, Christian, are Christ's portion. We are the spoil. We are his reward. We belong to him as the direct result of his faithfulness, of his obedience, of his willingness in laying down his life to the very bitter end. And all of our salvation, all of our forgiveness before God, peace with God and eternal life is all because he was successful. As verse 11 says, it was all because he poured out his soul to death. And again, here's the willingness and the intentionality of it all, right? No one took his life from him. He poured it out like someone would pour out the drink offering like a pouring out of water on the ground, he poured out his precious life. Remember when David had that, that water that was brought to him in the midst of battle, in the midst of crisis, and, and he takes this, this offering for which men have risked their lives, this precious, precious thing, and he pours it out. Christ poured out the precious life that he had 
everything that was in him that was worth more than all of the lives of all of humanity put together because it was a perfect and holy life and he poured it out like a drink offering to God and he was numbered with the transgressors, it says. That is, he willingly identified with sinners and yet the reality was he was no sinner, but he bore the sin of many. And that's the way this text circles back to where it began, right? He bore the sin of many. The many have been in view all along, right? These are the same many who were astonished at him back in chapter 52, verse 14. These are the same many who were sprinkled with the blood of Christ in chapter 15, uh, 52, verse 15. This is the same many who were accounted or declared to be righteous because of him in verse 11. These are the same many that are given to him as his portion and inheritance in verse 12. These are the many whose sins he bore. He bore every sin of every one of those people. And because of his perfect obedience, he was what? Raised from the dead ascended into heaven, exalted to the right hand of the throne of God and given authority over all the earth, given a people for his inheritance. He deserves it. He earned it. It is glory to his name. And in that exalted position, we read this in the very end of the chapter, in that exalted position it says, he makes intercession for the transgressors. He makes intercession for the transgressors. What a line. That those who deserve the wrath and curse of God, he pleads for them. How can you plead for a lawbreaker? <laughs> How can you plead the case for somebody who deserves what he's about to get? The answer is that he doesn't plead their case. He doesn't plead their merit. He pleads his. He pleads what he deserves. He pleads his righteousness. He pleads his obedience on their behalf. And in that, they have hope. How much weight do you think that would carry? His pleading his own merit. Oh, friend, listen to me. That kind of obedience has already been rewarded. He is exalted. He is on the throne of heaven. And that is why the salvation of his people, the many, is certain and secure. That is why it is no presumption for a believer to say, I am saved. Say, well, I hope I'm saved. When God judges the world, how can you possibly say, I am saved? How can you say, I am justified? Well, won't, won't your life either vindicate you or not vindicate you when you stand in the final judgment of God? I can say, I am vindicated. I am justified. I am saved. Why can I say that? And without presumption, as if I think highly of myself, I can say it because I understand the gospel. Because my salvation is not about Christ pleading my case. It's about him pleading his own merit. And because of that, every believer who is truly in Christ can be confident and rejoice in what his stand is before the Almighty God. This is why even in the face of pain and suffering, a Christian can rejoice. This is why even in the face of temptation, 
And yes, even in the face of occasional failure and sin, he can say, my righteousness is in heaven. He can say, my life is hid with Christ. He can say, he pleads his merit. Not my own. This is the heart of the Christian gospel. It's not be good and you can make it. It's that he pleads his own merit. And if you will humble yourself and confess your lack, utter lack of merit, and rest in his alone, you have hope. That's the good news. My salvation, my exaltation is certain. It's as sure as Christ's. Christ is already there. And if I am united with him in faith, friends, how can it be any other? It's already done. The verdict's already passed. The judgment that is to come has already been proclaimed on the cross of Calvary. That is the good news. So, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Amen.